I'm Baron Bezos, and this is your Beekeeping Podcast. Yeah, baby, buzzing. Right, let's get into it. Got a real treat for you guys today. Got a biologist on, and he's with the US Geological Survey. He's coordinated some amazing stuff, including the American Breeding Bird Survey, Amphibian Programme, BioBlitz, um, Cricket Crawl, Frog Watch, and he's currently working and monitoring uh, the native bees of America. And if you go on discoverlife.org, you'll see some of his data and his amazing photographs, what he produces. You know him as the bee guy, ladies and gentlemen, Sam Drogi. How are you doing, Sam? I'm, I'm doing really well, and it's a pleasure to be here. Excellent, excellent, Sam. Just off the bat, I hope you're well and all your family and your own are okay while the virus is going on. I hope uh, yeah. everyone's staying safe and right. well. We're fine, I'm, but I'm the only person in the laboratory, allowed in the laboratory <laughs> right now, so it's very quiet here, which is, is both good and also means that I'm not getting much done. <laughs> right. Sam, there's loads of things what, what I'll ask you, but I'll go back to the start. What's it like growing up as a child in Maryland? Well, I grew up in the in the suburbs, sort of the blue-collar suburbs, and um, I didn't know anyone who was into natural history um, or the outdoors or anything like that. But I did have a, um, a big uh, stream and woodlot, a small river, in front yeah. of my house, and Back in the day, they didn't really um, keep track of kids. They were all expected to be outside all day mm-hmm. and come home for supper. So I spent all my time in the woods and um, my friends and I explored and created our own taxonomy. And I would watch on television all these um, famous uh, biologists. And I thought it was a, a completely different world that, um, that they were special people. I was not a special person. and um, uh, but I spent my time at the library. I would pull out natural history books and field yeah. guides and try and learn um, that the old-fashioned way. There was, uh, you know, I'm uh, in my 60s now, so there was no internet. Yeah. Uh, so it was all playing around and learning by doing. And um, um, so that's that's how I started out. I, I always was interested in plants and animals, and that's all I really wanted to do. And um, there was never any... Um, any decisions on my part as to what my path in life might be. It didn't come upon this late in in life. It was a given. So by the sound of things, you're out in the woods all the time, at one with nature with your mates, get to know different species of birds and insects and plants. Was that the catalyst to get in touch with Chandler Robbins? Right. What was the outcome of that letter? Yeah, so I can tell you that's a to tell you that story quickly. Yeah, um, there was one book I had out from the library all the time, and that was is it's a technical book. It was called Birds of Maryland and District of Columbia. Yeah. No pictures. It was just would talk about each of the bird species, where they were, what they did. I had that book out all the time, and um, I wanted my own copy. My dad said, "Well, it's a government book. You can call up the government printing office." Um, They said, out of print. Then someone said that one author, Chandler Robbins, he still lives in the area somewhere. Mm. I opened up the uh, Washington, D.C. phone book, and there was a Chandler S. Robbins. 
So I wrote him with the thought that, of course, he would have some copies of the book to, yeah. to, that he could sell me. And that was my only um, aspiration in that, that um, conversation. And um, I, it turns out it wasn't, it wasn't the Chandler Robbins, but it, it was his cousin. Oh, right. <laughs> he forwarded it to Chan, and then his uh, wife, Eleanor, um, uh, wrote back for Chan, and Chan, I think, also wrote back. He still had, when he passed away, we went through his correspondence, and there yeah. were my letters from the 1970s. Oh, wow. Still there. It was funny. And um, invited me to come to the local bird club, uh, which Eleanor helped organize. Mm -hmm. And um, then I started um, hanging out. Uh, the they didn't have citizen science and not even volunteers, but I would help out the researchers at the research uh, refuge where I'm working now. Yeah. Uh, banned birds and um, then got involved with Christmas bird counts and all. So, so did, all did that, many did, things oh, you can do. Sorry for interrupting, Sam, but that get you in the Audubon annual and got you into that side of things. Yeah, I was almost, uh, because of the people who I ran into, it was almost all I did was do um, bird-related topics, yeah. but they were also good naturalists. So they would point out the different flowers and the plants. So I learned them too, and the different kinds of amphibians and, and you know, anything we ran into. Insect-wise, um, you know, that was a different story. I picked up most of that you know, when I started going to college and taking entomology. Yeah, yeah. When I knew that you was coming on the podcast, Sam, I tried to find a couple of uh, fun facts about you. I found quite a few. Uh, I'm hoping the second one's seriously true. Uh, but the first one is that when you was at school, um, you used to use every excuse in the book to jump class or skip class so you could be out in the woods um, doing your bird watching. Is yeah. that true? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say that um, in uh, high school, I uh, would skip classes not to go drinking under the bleachers and other normal activities. Yeah. I would go out bird watching. Like I'd, I'd make up some excuse and I was out looking at birds. Well, yeah. Go, go figure. Excellent. So now for my second fun fact, and I'm praying this one's true. So Sam, while you was at college, did you earn the nickname... Roadkill Drogi. Is it true? Yeah. <laughs> is yeah. it? So, let, let me start you. So, is it true you've eaten over 100 squirrels? Yeah. So, <laughs> when, I, when I was in grad school, well, you really are doing your homework here. So, when I was in grad school, I, I ran out of funding. And um, for a while, I worked for Manpower, which is just, uh, you know, uh, a temporary services and yeah. You know, minimum wage, did all kinds of crazy things. And then finally, I worked a job where I was cleaning out a rendering plant, yeah. uh, which is worse than you can ever imagine, but so bad that it was actually kind of interesting. But then I realized, like, you know, you this is this is not serving you really that well. Just take out a loan. And then I just moved into my laboratory and I, I would just sleep on pieces of cardboard um, at night. And then I uh, trapped squirrels uh, that came to the uh, bird feeder outside the laboratory <laughs> and uh, ate them. And yeah. then I also would pick up roadkill along the, the road, um, you know, when I when the opportunity struck. So yeah. that's amazing. And then, I went, then I went to all the parties, you know, so I could get free drink and food. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, I have my strategies. 
Excellent, excellent. Good times, eh? So you graduated, is it in 1985? Yeah. Um, from grad school, when did I, gra- when did I graduate? Um, I guess, um, I think 85. I graduated in 85. 85, yeah. So in 85, you get on the um, breeding bird survey and right. you also get the, um, the phenological gig. Is that right as well? Within the six uh, years span? Well, uh, initially I just was running the uh, North American um, breeding bird survey and um and then um i transitioned to uh working on just developing more surveys uh nationwide surveys for uh birds of different kinds yeah and then um started a program for uh a north american amphibian monitoring program mm-hmm. um and developed several sort of projects for frogs and amphibians um salamanders uh there then um moved on um to uh, more what I'm doing now, which I started working on uh, uh, bee surveys for pollinators. There's several yeah. smaller surveys for butterflies in there too. Um, and then um, during that same time, I realized that I had become the caretaker for um, what we call now the um, uh, the North American Bird Phenology Program. Yeah. Um, it dated back to the 1800s um, and what they did to shorten a, st- a longer story, is they had correspondents, they would call them, they're really volunteers, throughout the US and Canada, and some in the Caribbean and Mexico, who would track when birds arrived during migration and when they left during migration, Yeah, among other things. And these existed as millions of small cards in 35 or more um, file cabinets, yeah. um, you know, holding a two by five inch card. And so we decided that, because of global climate change and other issues that we would um, start scanning in those cards, transcribing the data online. So we had online transcribers from around the world actually. And and then we assembled a data set. We have a million record data set now of bird phenologies, which um, mostly is sitting over at Georgetown University at this point uh, where they're finishing up the final, you know, as far as you can go. When you have a million records, there's always things to do and problems to render but um we're we're wrapping up a completion of that data set so yeah pretty exciting excellent that was just a that was a side project really really <laughs> just a side project oh yeah there's a lot of them <laughs> so i'm going to talk bees now sam and you've had some really decent publications and to name but a few is the dna barcode and for identifying native bees uh, alien bee species and native bee inventory. They're all out there. It's priceless information. And if you're into this sort of stuff, have a search on the internet. Go and grab it because it's there to be had and, and you'll love trawling through it. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, what I will do is I will put some images on from discoverlife.org. So while you're watching it, you can see some of the stuff um, Sam does and produces. It's absolutely fantastic. But like I say, I urge you to go on discoverlife.org and have a look at it and see what it's all about. So Sam, when you start a new project, so let's say you've gone from, I don't know, um, frog watch and you knew a bit of um, bio blitz and then you're on the base. Do you use the same format or do you use a different, or do you use a, um, a, a format where, you know, we can manipulate it or is it just totally different? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I would I would say each one is different because they all have different problems and there's different ways of of setting up surveys. Some may be online. Others you have to use traps like you do with bees, and others are observational. Um, so each one is different, and so there's no real set um, overall routine, but. Over time, we've learned um, a lot about what people find acceptable and what people find boring and what they will continue to do over long periods of time yeah. uh, where we have problems. So um, we, we apply all those lessons um, to what the next stages might be um, in terms of a new monitoring program or um, project of some kind. So there's no formula. It yeah. all has to be tweaked. And the statistics are always different too because each critter has its own problems, yeah. sampling strategies. So how big is your team then, Sam? Um, do you know, when, when you're on, when you in the lab, when you're delegating jobs out, is it a case of just jumping and get your hands dirty or do you like certain people for certain roles? Yeah, it's kind of a one-man operation. So um, <laughs> each time... I get interested and I, I'm very hands-on. So if I'm learning about amphibians, I'm out there all the time, um, you know, uh, plotting around and listening or uh, turning over logs or whatever it might be. Um, and now with bees, I'm spending all my time um, sampling bees with nets, um, going out in the field, um, traveling. And this would be just my natural inclination anyway. So wherever mm -hmm. I go, I'm observing animals and um, wanting to learn names. And now, uh, each of the each of the the programs that we've developed and run um, requires me to you know change my focus. Um, so right now it's all about bees. So wherever I go, it could be a wedding or a funeral or um, a vacation, uh, which is of course annoying to your partner um, <laughs> and all kinds of things. Um, I've got a net in the back, and I'm like, okay, give me a couple hours here, and I'm going to go out yeah. and um, do some poking around so that I learn and have um, the, a develop a capacity um, and a, um, a bank fault of information and experience on doing these survey techniques myself and also about the, um, the life histories. You know, there, yeah. it's, it's not just a digital um, set of data points. You really have to um, use that information all the time to help interpret what you're finding and look for patterns and, um, so, uh, yeah, very hands-on. And then <clears throat> as I do, as I begin to uh, work on a, a project like that, which is basically just me, then I begin to see, okay, well, here's some opportunities. Here's um, some groups that maybe I want to partner with. I'll go visit people. Um, I'll start um, collecting data for them. And then I see where maybe we fit in and where uh, a more national approach is um, useful or, or maybe I'm just um, going to focus on developing survey techniques and allow other people to develop the survey programs themselves. Yeah. Um, and so we, we kind of do the boring stuff for most people, which is um, we're not out there investigating causal factors for agricultural um, decline of bee pollination and soybeans. We're telling you how to, um, you know, collect that information. What's the yeah. best technique? Um, what's more efficient, what kind of traps work, what don't. Um, we're exploring different um, approaches to monitoring and surveying. Um, and, you know, we're I'm very satisfied with doing that. But it's, you know, not getting you into science or nature publications. Yeah. Um, if talking about techniques, if you go on YouTube, 
um, or just general, the internet generally, um, you have to put some videos out uh, or mm-hmm. upload rather. And one I find quite intriguing was when you dry them out, well, you wash them and dry them out, ready for the photo shoot, ready for the big pic, like models. And I think that's that's one, if, if someone's listened to this, because there's plenty of other... Um, Upload what you part about catching bees and bee traps, and the information's there, isn't it? So it's ready available, even for someone who's in the UK who, who wants to have a dabble and just find out what species are what and so on and so forth. The techniques are there on hand to use, and there's plenty, there's plenty of information and help to hand, isn't there? But what you've put, already put out. So yeah, the, the the monitoring techniques that we've developed over here in North America really completely apply um, to all of Europe um, and uh, in most parts of the world. So in some some environments, particularly tropical jungles, you have to do some different things, but mostly you can use the, the kinds of things that we spend most of our time over here working on are applicable elsewhere. Have you noticed anything what's given you cause for concern or erasing alarm bells in your head once you're getting in the data is it not coming in quick enough is it coming in too fast for for you to deal with or is there a lack of education revolving around the information because when bees decline it's a telltale sign that people start reacting Mm -hmm. is there something in your data where you look at it and you think wow at a certain point in time we're going to have a bit of a problem here. Does that make sense, Sam? Yeah, I think so. Um, there's a couple of things going on. One is that we actually just have really lousy information about bees in um, North America, particularly compared to the UK. So in the UK, I think you have a very stable list of the uh, mm. native, non-native bees that occur um, occur there. Um, there's many more people looking. They, there's a tradition of looking. You have the the national grid, and just um, it's uh, it's you it's denser with natural history related people. Um, in North America, it's quite different. So um, we suffer from just lack of information. So there are new species being discovered all the time. We still estimate that somewhere five to ten percent of all the bee species in North America don't even have names at this point. Um, in the east where there's a longer tradition of looking at natural history and um, theoretically better lists um, we're still finding uh, new species there too so undescribed species and also um, distributional gaps that are um, you know that are hundreds of miles apart so we are now documenting um, uh, what would appear to be range extensions, but really are just the fact that no one's looked. And yeah. so we're seeing bees 100 miles from the nearest record. And is it that they've moved there? And the answer is almost certainly no. Mm-hmm. Um, so given that, given that we have a poor historic record and that we have um, uh, only a few people looking now, most, most of the research now is more ecological, which is appropriate. You don't have that old fashioned natural history, like let's go out and look for the rare bees on the rare plants and you have um so uh i have a concern just with the fact that we we know so little um and so that's something we're trying to up um with our our national database and also 
um, helping other people to get appropriately identified specimens and to encourage them by giving them targets each uh, month uh, to look at some of these um, plant groups and plant habitats. One thing that, again, that we're trying to raise awareness over and I think is a big issue is that um, plant diversity is the main problem and the main driver in the conservation of bees. And the reason for that is that most, not maybe not most, but um, a good proportion of the uh, uh, bees in the United States and to some extent in Europe too, but um, uh, focusing over here are highly specialized. In other words, if you don't have willow trees, you don't have a whole series of bees that um, only collect pollen from willow trees. And right. we can go through a long series of uh, plant groups that have bees that are solely going to be using different kinds of heathers that are on cacti um, and, and on and on and on. And so um, these more simplistic kind of approaches that would be used for honeybee management, like, well, let's plant a bunch of clover and um, mints, um, is fine for a lot of native bees. You know, they might come in for a sip, but mm. you exclude then all the ones that are, are really of conservation issues. So the conservation issues have to do with plant diversity issues and the fact that we've eliminated or simplified so many of these environments um, and then um, because they're anthropogenic now. So right. um, then uh, the final part of that is in our um, now small and smaller acreages of naturalized landscapes or parks, um, we tend to just look at them as tree farms. In other words, we, any open space gets planted with trees and we're not looking at the broader picture, which is that many plants require transitional habitats, disturbed habitats, open habitats, which you have to maintain by taking out trees, yeah. taking out woody vegetation, periodically resetting. It's work and you have to be smart about it. And um, so the main issues for me from a conservation point of view is not an overall loss in all bees. That'd be like saying that, well, we have an overall loss in all birds, but most of those declining birds might be sparrows and starlings, for example, to um, focusing in on the fact that um, what we need to be paying attention to is a um, loss in plant diversity. You don't even need to necessarily know about bees. You just need to be maintaining these plant communities. Yes, yeah, so, so just let me introduce you. I don't, know if yeah, you go right ahead. I don't know if you remember, but I did email you um, a couple of months ago and <laughs> The, the basis of the email was saying, I'm thinking of buying this land, what do you think of this? And it was from honeybees, blah, blah, blah. And you come back to me and say, well, actually, you've got to take into consideration other bees. It's not just honeybees. And it was a sort of moment of clarity for me. I then took on myself to start researching and deciding, actually, I need to build an infrastructure on this land when I purchase it so it's sustainable for wildlife and that's it at the end of the day. Great. With that, you've got to have the correct, obviously, plantation and like you say, it's got to overgrow, it's got to grow wild and free, wildflowers. That you've got to give something a chance and that's it. It's, it's all very well. Having nice lawns and it all looking pretty and nice and that sort of manufactured garden, but 
how about just let, let it go free and let's see what happens in, in your garden. And that's sort of my attitude. So from there, I come full circle and then I started reading more of his stuff, reading a lot of his publications and a lot of what he say, it just makes total sense. And I do think at some point in time, people will be going back to your early publications, say actually the keys in some of this stuff here, have a look at it. Everything fell on deaf ears at the time when I was telling people about it, you know, and I think that that's the way forward. So that comes, comes to my next question. I've got a small garden and, and maybe someone who's listed this wants to, well, actually, I, want, I fancy introducing a bit of um, insects and wildlife. I don't want it to take over my full garden. I just want a small bit. What can they do, Sam? So I, I come back to uh, uh, this, this notion of uh, diversity of plants. So um, rather than concentrating on the details of what, uh, what kinds of wildlife and what kinds of insects and what kinds of uh, things are related, you can learn that. But I wouldn't start with that because often it's overwhelming. And I would look at any landscape, be it a you know, small, tiny um, uh, bit of land behind your row house, to your estate as um, a place that you can reintroduce a diversity of plants. Because when you're dealing with insects, you're dealing with very small creatures. They don't mm. need this um, elk, bison, um, <laughs> you know, muskox level landscape to roam around in. Your backyard is uh, in some ways a complete habitat. And if you populate it just with um, alien grasses that are mowed and all the weeds are gone, well, you have something, but mostly they're just pests of that grass population. Yeah. But if you start introducing, particularly the local wildflowers, you bring with that a whole um, zoological catalog of all kinds of small creatures, insects, millipedes, um, that are going to start feeding on those plants. And then what will happen is that all the uh, local birds will start moving in there to um, feed on the, the insects that have populated to nest and to, to use that, that created space because that's the system that grew up in the area, right? If you bring in mostly plants from other parts of the world, then you actually don't bring anything else. You bring in those plants, they're very derived. They're probably bred by breeders to produce a certain kind of flower size yeah. and shape. Not much nectar and pollen often. Mm. And they certainly aren't supporting um, the uh, local wildlife. So they may attract a few things, but what we're looking for is support rather than attracting. So supporting the local wildlife is bringing in a lot of native plants back into your um, altered landscape, i.e. lawns. Yeah. And um, you, even one or two plants really is a help um, at that scale. So it's all about um, re-vegetating, repatriating, if you want to call it, um, renewing all the re's of your, um, your yard and yep. anything else that you can convince the local um, municipalities to do along those same lines. Nothing, yes. There's nothing that says that everything has to be lawn, neat and tidy and trim, but just one hint here is before people go out of control and just stop mowing their grass and having the neighbors complain and whatnot. The key always is keeping the man-made objects. Your house should have good bedding plants. Your sidewalks should be trimmed out with a nice string trimmer. 
your presentation at the front, at the edge of the road should be ultra trim, and then everything else is on you, right? But you have kept the agreement with the neighborhood because we don't know quite what you've done, but you've done it on purpose and we see, you know, that you're still alive in your house yeah. and that you're taking care of your property. Mm. And so that's the, that's the key is not walking away from your job of maintaining things so that it looks good for your neighbors is just changing that behavior. Yeah. So the message is in essence, plants and wildlife, they work hand in hand with each other. That's it. And if you want to eat and if you, if you want things out in life, you better start growing. <laughs> that might yeah. be my message. Yeah. In 2017, um, Sam, you did a TED Talk. Absolutely amazing. Go on YouTube. You can check it out. It's, it's brilliant. It's got some of your work, some of your photographs, what you've done. Off the back of that, did you get much interest into what you was doing? Um, you're going to have to <laughs> have to remind me, what did I do in 2017? Uh, the TED Talk. Oh, the TED Talk one. Yeah. Um, uh, some, you know, we have lots of bits because everything we do is public domain. We have um, lots of different kinds of audiences that mm. we're reaching in different ways. Just our pictures, for example, are, you know, we're getting millions of views. I don't know. Mm. I think we're at 60 million views right now. And they're used widely because they're all public domain, mm. including, by the way, a lot of European um, bee pictures. Yeah. And we're here some Slovakian ones right now. Um, and uh, so, and then we're on Instagram and Tumblr and Twitter and whatnot. Um, so it's hard to say what the value of the TED Talk was. Um, it certainly has reached um, certain groups of people. And I think this general message of de-lawnifying or altering your, um, the habitats you control is something that um, uh, the individual citizen needs to take responsibility for. It's not mm. something that should be on the shoulders completely of the governments to maintain parks and wildlife. You have a small piece of land, most people do, that you control, and that was a, a, a beautiful biodiverse um, native habitat at one point in history, and now probably is not. And you can, you can make a contribution. Yeah. That's, that's sort of uh, my conservation message. Um, and then if you want all the nerdy little details about all the lovely interactions between specific plants and specific bees, we can give that to you too. But most people don't want to go that far. I mean, it's, it's all on that website. Though. If you go on that, um, is it uh, discoverlife.org? Mm -hmm. the data, it's absolutely, there's a catalog there. And the world's your oyster. You just go on it and you can educate yourself by just having to play around with it, I suppose, and just finding out um, stuff about different insects. I mean, because you do cover um, insects on there as well as bees, don't you, as, mm -hmm. as, as well. So the, the, there's plenty to go at, isn't there? The, there's no excuse, really. If you, if you want, want to try and understand on something else on a different level, I'd point people to that and just, just give it a whirl and, and try it and check it out, you know? Yeah. Amazing. Right. The other thing what I want to bring up, I'm going to uh, be a bit light now, is the JAR app. Can you hear me? Oh, sorry. Well, the other thing what I want to bring up, I want to be a bit more light-hearted now, is the, is the JAR app. I've seen a couple oh, of... yeah. Where do we get yeah, we, one from? We, we, usually call, talk, yeah. <laughs> we usually call them Jews harps. And um, so, uh, you know, it's something that 
uh, around the world is uh, is used and modified in different ways. And yeah, like I I have juice harps in my um, car when I drive, and although I shouldn't be playing while I'm driving, but, you know, every once in a while, you know, on those long stretches. Um, so yeah, that's one of my my obscure skills. So right, it's called a, a juice harp. Well, we call it juice in North America. We'll call it juice harps. Um, you go to each of the countries, you know, in um, in each of the European countries, we'll call it a different different thing. What made you What made you pick it up and have a go of it? I just out of intrigue. Oh, I've always been I've been involved with uh, traditional song and dance and um, music um, groups uh, from the 1980s and. Yeah. Um, so I've, uh, and, you know, I play a little bit of piano and do percussion, uh, you know, play baron, foot percussion, uh, bones, all these sort of traditional, obscure, um, percussive types of interests. And, and juice harps had always interested me, but the kind of juice harps that you could get at the local music store were, frankly, pieces of junk. And so you would try to play them and it would be like, this, this doesn't really do anything or doesn't play well. And then only gradually over time did I discover the people who, um, you know, basically by hand would make these um, traditional um, uh, musical instruments. The ones I like the most right now, are, I think are from Romania or was it Bulgaria? I can't remember. But there are groups who now precisely manufacture these things and you can you know i have keyed sets that um you know i play that are tuned so yeah. it's it's actually quite quite the instrument that i think are are well underappreciated by uh most musicians and people yeah i love it. i think it's brilliant when i saw you play i thought what's, what's this what's this about and then i thought i might uh, get myself one i have a, have a little well of one yeah, well, you get a good, get a yeah. good. <laughs> Romania, apparently. <laughs> One last message to put out, Sam. With all your data and all the stuff what you've done throughout the years, where can you see these B situation going or general insect situation going? Yeah, so two things. One is I'm really encouraged by the amount of interest, like you're in a good example. Um, of the average person and acknowledgement that, first of all, that bugs are of any kind are important. That's a sort of a novel thing over the last few decades because mm. before it was something that we just shrugged off um, and um, that they play a role, um, that the loss of bees is something that uh, we have to be concerned about. And that's not gone away. It's only increased over the past several decades. And what we're seeing is people taking actions like doing plantings, um, developing pollinator gardens, which is not a, um, an ancient, you know, you can't go back into ancient times and find um, medieval pollinator gardens. It's new. It's all the last couple decades. So mm. that is really encouraging. Um, on the discouraging part, um, we still have this loss of biodiversity. This plant biodiversity is the is the the biggest problem. So yes, there are localized uh, issues with pesticide use and other things. But if you um, uh, create a new road where that roadbed is, there are no bees. You know, you can just do some very straightforward calculations. If you put in um, corn and soybeans and row crops there are essentially no bees in those areas any longer. Uh, not simply because you spray the heck out of them, 
but also because the, you've plowed up the habitat and there's no weeds left. And um, so you just look at what we have done in terms of using the world and using the landscape. And a lot of that is anti-bee, let's call it, but it's anti-everything. So bees mm. are a tiny, uh, more accessible to most people um, uh, group of animals that are insects, uh, but behind them are many, many thousands more of insects that we really are less likely to develop a relationship with, um, but are equally important and equally come and go and don't even have names that we want to retain as part of our biodiversity bank. And um, so we get back to this um, notion that we're using up more of the world's habitats um, in a way that prevents uh, almost anything else occurring on that, that spot. And I'm including lawns here too, but certainly built up areas. And um, so the remaining areas, we, instead of having this laissez-faire sort of attitude, like, oh, it'll all work out because, you know, they'll just move to a new place or they'll take care of it, they'll sort it out themselves. No, I think we have to start paying more and more attention to um, maintaining these areas, looking at balances between um, introduced alien species of plants that might be um, invading these spots and taking over um, natural areas, rare communities, um, the role of disturbance, which we've largely gotten rid of because we suppress all the fires and allow plants, um, the woody plants to always win. So we're going to have to be just more smart and more involved in all, all these decisions because there's less and less land um, that can support um, all the, the diversity of life um, in a way without us getting to being hands-on. So mm. those are my, that's my main message there that the, the main issues are uh, continue to be this habitat loss as we become richer and more populated world. Yeah. And lastly, uh, after going through your database, I want you to pick me your favorite well, B, what you photographed and which family it's from and explain why. Mm. So, um, actually my favorite, so there's, you know, usually it's, the, my favorite bee is the one I'm looking at currently. <laughs> um, there's, what is my most favorite? You know, some of the green bees, so there's metallic green bees. They essentially yes. are bright and shiny and blingy like a race car. And, um, they photograph so well. You really have a difficult time going wrong when you have metallic green as your base color. So some of those uh, algochlorellas and algochloras, um, algo um, uh, being an indicator of greenness, are, are among my favorites. I, but there's so many interesting bees and interesting stories to work on that I'm, it's, I really, I don't know if I can really limit myself. I do have a group though that I work on because it's taxonomically tricky. They're also beautiful, but mostly it's a, a challenge and that's a genus of bee. It occurs in the UK and Europe too, um, called nomada. And um, nomada are uh, nest parasites on other bees, mostly the genus Andrina, which are mining bees. And um, they look like wasps because basically bees are wasps. And so um, the bees that parasitize other bees, I lay their eggs in the nest of, of other bees' nests. Um, what's going on there is um, that they have no need to carry pollen and nectar, so they look basically like wasps because 
they don't have to have the bee tools necessary for uh, moving and working with the pollen like the hairier other bees do. Mm. So they're, they're also uh, full of reds and yellows and stripes and um, you can do a Google search on these. Um, they're relatively common. Um, you can go out this time of year in the spring and see them both in Europe and um, in North America right in your gardens on um, plants and you might uh, think of them as wasps initially but a little more inspection and you'll see that um, uh, they're actually um, a beautiful set of bees which yeah. we don't know that much about. Sam, it's been absolute pleasure and I really appreciate you coming on. Hopefully you'll come on again when I'm a bit more straighter and just doing a bit of building work at the moment in my house and the studio will be done soon. But that's a different story. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to thank a very special guy, the bee guy, that was Sam Drogi. Thank you very much, I'm honoured. Thank you. Follow me at Baron Beatles on Twitter and catch up with all the latest podcasts on YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and tuned in. Thanks for listening.